On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Bridge to Terabithia listener polls, learn about the Mike Shane Mysteries series, and preview Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We've got another prequel episode. We've got quite a bit to talk about, so we'll get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Vic Hammer, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby's in her Capybara era, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all. So much for your continued support. Katie, let's see what the people had to say about Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had three votes for the book, one for the movie, and two listeners who couldn't decide. Matilde said, So this was a unique experience. I'm used to tearjerkers, but what I prefer are books or movies that, yes, bring on the tears, but in a very specific way, with its own mix of emotions. This book certainly did that. I was feeling waves of nostalgia, bittersweetness, happiness, and grief one after the other throughout. I found a lot of myself in Jess and his situation in life and his escapism with Leslie. I didn't expect to, so it hit even harder. Like you mentioned, it navigates the serious subject matter with a tone and style that is both accessible and not patronizing, and I was very impressed with it. It brought me back to my childhood. It was simple, and yet dug deep in the emotions. I just loved it, story and style, even if I was crying nonstop for most of it. Okay, knowing Leslie that was dying beforehand, that didn't help. But even the sweeter moments, like Jess with Maybelle, hit very close to home, and made me sob. I have no defense when it comes to sibling stuff. It was the first time in a long time, but I couldn't finish the movie. Reading the book was a journey, but having it playing out in front of my eyes and not just in my head was way more difficult to handle. I was steadily crying not even five minutes in, just in anticipation, so I turned it off after 15 minutes or so to calm down. I tried to psych myself up to finish it for days afterwards, but I simply couldn't do it. I had to put down my 18-year-old cat this week, so I was already pretty emotional. I think it was safer for me not to not force it. It's disappointing because from what I saw and what you guys covered in the episode, it's a lovely adaptation. I'll definitely give the watch another shot in the future when I'm in a better mindset for it. As an additional note, I don't understand why casting Josh, Josh Hutcherson was such a process. I thought he was great, very expressive without saying much. I was on board with him as Jesse from the first shot, so I voted that I couldn't decide since I couldn't evaluate the movie fairly, and I think it would have been a tough decision even if I had managed to finish it. I'm grateful a comedy is coming next. I need the levity now more than ever. Yeah, uh, no, I, 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 again, well, I can't say I agree with a lot because you didn't watch the movie, so I don't, um, you didn't have a lot to say specifically about the movie, but I agree about Josh Hutcherson. I thought he was also fantastic. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, there was it, again from the few things I read, it sounded like there was some hesitation in casting him, but I thought he was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I will say I thought it was interesting because this movie didn't 
I I'm I'm I I am easily gotten by a movies uh and and TV shows and stuff in terms of emotionality and like get, getting to me. And not to say this one didn't cuz it did, but it wasn't as bad as maybe I was expecting it to be. I'm yeah. not sure what it what maybe knowing yeah. what was going to happen going in actually helped me whereas it sounds like for uh Matilda maybe made it worse, which I thought was interesting cuz mm-hmm. for me maybe knowing made that I don't know. I, 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 there was definitely a handful of moments in particular that like kind of, you know, I, I welled up a little and got emotional, but it wasn't as intense as I was kind of expecting it to be, which is interesting. You know, it, it is, it's interesting how different things affect different people like that. Anyways, I do hope you uh, are able to revisit it one day. Cause I do think the movie was worth, is worth the time if you can get through it, but obviously it's, you know, it's not so good that you like need to force yourself <laughs> through it while sobbing. That is, yeah, uh, that is its own thing. And our condolences on, on losing your cat. We also uh, recently lost a cat. So we're, we know what that's, we're going through the same thing right now. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's not fun, but you know, it's an emotional experience. Yes. Yes, for sure. Um, <clears throat> Our next comment was from Len Flakazinski. I think I nailed it that time. I think you did. Um, who said, probably the movie that makes me cry most consistently. When I feel like I need to explore that part of my brain, I always return to the same couple scenes in this movie. The reveal, the memorial, the teacher reveal scene especially is heartbreaking. Explaining that it's okay to cry, I think is even more impactful for a young boy, when boys are generally reinforced not to cry. That change you brought up is interesting, how Jesse chooses to not invite Leslie. It definitely makes the grief hit harder for me, but I also agree that it probably puts an undue burden on Jess, who already had a pretty complicated relationship with Leslie. It does make the end scene with the dad more impactful as well. I don't think I had any tears left by that point. Also, I saw this movie in the theater with another boy and our two dads. I don't remember everything about seeing it for the first time since we were both under 10 years old. But from what my dad told me is the movie got all of us. Interesting. Again, I don't know why. um, I don't know what it is that didn't. I don't think I actually cried at all during this movie. Again, Mm -hmm. I got close a couple times, but I don't think. I don't think so. And I, I cried yesterday. We were watching just an episode of Sex Education, and there was just like a particular scene where it was, I think it was around a death. But, anyways, I don't know. It, it yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know. And again, it's not that it didn't move me because it did, but it definitely didn't. Yeah. Compared to I like mean, quite a few other movies, it didn't get me in the same way. Yeah, I, I didn't cry watching this movie. I, I would say that I'm not like a particularly easy crier. You are not. I cry movies. more movies than you do. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> and I love that about you. <laughs> Something that always kind of gets me is when there's like a, a particularly like swelly music. Yeah. Yeah, that and maybe it's more so like the thing that I think thinking on it now more so is that gets me tends to be more like really sentimental, like sweet moments, maybe as opposed to like sad moments, mm-hmm. kind of try because like the movie I think I've cried the most in in my life was um, everything everywhere all at once. Like I cried like the whole last like hour of that movie, basically. 
um, where there's not really anything sad necessarily. They're sad, but it's not like it's mostly like kind of term like resolutions of tumultuous relationships and like mm-hmm. uh, and and then another movie I was thinking of where I cried a lot that I remember is um Arrival, which the end of that is sad, but it's also not sad. Yeah, when she's like the whole speech at the end where she's talking about like. If you've seen Arrival, the whole speech at the end with that Amy Adams has sobbed through the whole thing in theaters the first time we saw it. And I, I'm sure I would still cry if we watched that movie again. I'm sure I did when we did it on the podcast. But I think it's things like that that are like a, a mixture of happy and sad get me more than just <laughs> sad things, maybe. Which, again, this movie has both of those. I don't know. It has that, too. But like... Not quite the same kind of like mixture. Yeah. Where you're maybe that's both, what like, it is really really hard at the same time yeah because the same thing like in sex education the other day when I had, uh, at the scene there was like it's like a mixture of th- of emotionality that gets me more than just like grief i think mm. maybe i don't know it's interesting uh, over on facebook we had three votes for the book and zero for the movie greg said i'm going with the book on this one as well Like you guys, I thought the movie was a fine adaptation that gets a lot of things from the book right, makes some interesting additions of its own, and preserves the emotional tenor and impact of the story well, but there were a few minor things that felt off to me. Some of them result from updating the setting to a contemporary time period, in addition to Zoe Deschanel's character being able to take Jess on an impromptu field trip without ironclad permission being wildly implausible in 2000s America, as you noted in your discussion. I found the movie not doing anything to address the way technology has influenced how contemporary kids play, use their imaginations, and interact with each other to make it a little less believable. We know electronic devices exist in this universe, as the stern teacher mentions them at the beginning, but they're never brought up again afterwards, which felt like an oversight. They could have easily explained this by adding in a line of dialogue about Jess's family being unable to afford video games or computers while Leslie's parents forbid them, and I think that would have addressed this point while also strengthening the sense of these two being social outsiders, Hmm. but they choose to just ignore it. That's an interesting point that I did not think of. Yeah, I didn't does, think of that either, really. It does make sense. And, but I think it works. You also don't, I don't think you have to necessarily address it. I think, it, I don't know. I think, I think you can, I think you can set a movie in a kind of nebulous time period where. Yeah. That doesn't really, that, you know, because obviously this is written before cell phones and video games and, or for the most part, obviously, um, back in the 70s. But um, I don't know if. Again, to me, it didn't even. I didn't even clock it. Now that yeah. you mention it, I'm like, I that mean, is kind of interesting. But I, I think that if they had addressed it in the way that Greg like kind of spelled out here, yeah. I think that would have added an interesting layer. To no, it. for sure. I definitely think there's a there's a way to modernize yeah. the the story a little bit. Yeah, and kind of to yeah. me, I don't think that's necessary. Like for right. me, yeah. Um, but I could see how that would maybe be something yeah. irking I, I definitely could see it uh, as a layer that you could add yeah to kind of help fle- like to contemporize the story and flesh out kind of again why they're mm-hmm. um these two are kind of friends in the same way or in the way they are and it is mentioned with the tv thing like you said where the, yeah. the line where like to some extent about how her parents don't like let her watch tv um and i think yeah they're there isn't anything about him them not being able to afford one, is there? Because well, they have a TV. No, they have a TV. TV yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. I think there definitely could be something there. For sure, no. Also, to me, 2007 is, like, kind of nebulous enough. It's early enough. It's early enough to where, like, because when I think back, like, 2007, I was in the tail end of high school. And, like, a lot of people had cell phones, but they weren't, like, smartphones. Yes. No. And and little kids, I don't think. So, like, yeah, tail end of high school, I had a cell phone, but most of the people I know did not have, like, an I think iPhone came out in 2005 or six. Like, it was only a couple years after the iPhone came out. Like, my senior year of high school, I graduated in 08. I think I knew maybe two or three people in my graduating class who had iPhones, like the first iPhones. Yeah. uh, The iPhone came out in 2007. Yeah. Like uh, it came out yeah. on my birthday in 2007. <laughs> Look at you. Um, you share a birthday with the iPhone. Like literally the year when the summer I graduated. Funny. Um, but yeah, like because I, I had like a little Nokia like yeah. you know, cell phone that you could te- I could kind of text on, but not yeah, even you really. Could do, like, like I didn't T9 and uh, you know, yeah. I had it so I could call my Yeah, mom I really had it so I could <laughs> call emergency. my parents for stuff or whatever, or call a friend or something, but like for the most part I didn't use it. Um and that was how most of the kids yeah. were at my school. Like I said, there were some kids that had like, you know, nicer, you know, phones and stuff. But I, I don't I think at this time period, it would not quite have been prolific enough that it needed to be addressed. I think video games, you could make an mm-hmm. argument for sure. Um, maybe more. But even then, I think it's yeah, I could see. I, I understand. That, again, didn't even phase me. Didn't even think about it in the movie. But I think if you were to add it and you could figure out a way to work it in that kind of contemporizes the story a little bit. I just don't think it's super necessary. Yeah. Um, uh, Greg went on to say, similarly, it would have been nice to at least explain why nobody in the story had cell phones or similar means of communication that could have cleared up some misunderstandings the plot hinges on in the third act. Again, I think it wor- uh, we just kind of got into it, but I think it works in the sense that uh, in 2006, when this was being filmed or written, you know, 2007 mm-hmm. or whatever, it kids this age, not all very, I think it would probably be pretty rare for a middle schooler. I to agree. have a cell phone. Yeah. I think, like I said, I had one. Yeah, especially in like a rural area. Yeah, yeah. I had one in 2007, but I was in high school. And I I don't, I, I could be wrong. Maybe more kids did have them then. And I just didn't really. But like, again, it was not, it was not like every single kid in school had a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely not like a thing that people used all the time. Yeah. Like, and parents were terrible. Like, even then, that was the thing with me. Like, my parents were, t- even though they had a cell phone, they were terrible about using it. Like, they would yeah. never have it on, yeah. like, all the time. And, like, so half the time, if I tried to, I would have to get a hold of them at home, like, on the landline, because a lot of times they wouldn't even have their cell phone on, even yeah. if they had it. And it could be, I can imagine, you know, his parents coming up oh, poor. I, I have, and, yeah, I have to imagine that that's how his dad would be. Yeah. If his dad had. Yeah. Like he would have like a cheap little yeah. like pay pay as you go that was type what I had, phone. Yeah. yeah. And like probably would never turn it on because he wouldn't want to run the battery down. Exactly. Or yeah, <laughs> or or get he think he would get calls that he would have to pay for that he yeah. didn't want to, you know, like that was how my dad is exactly how my dad was. And I yeah. So I I, I I think we're just right on the cusp of when you don't have to worry still about explaining that yeah. kind of issues. With it cell is phones. a really interesting kind of time period because if it had been made like just a year or two later we would have really had to address why nobody had a cell phone but 2007 not 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 as as much not as much of an issue no for sure um greg went on to say 
Uh, I also didn't like the choice to age up the characters. I thought Hutcherson and Rob both gave good performances, but they looked more like 12 or 13 years old to me than 10 or 11 as Jess and Leslie are in the book. I, I, I'm not trying to laugh. I'm sorry. I laughed. It's just to me, all kids, I, you gun to my head. How old is this kid? I couldn't tell you if they're, (laughs) I I couldn't tell you if they're like any age. I I just truly like, I could get within a ballpark of like five years. I could get within a ballpark for sure. Yeah. But like. But I, this kind of distinction between 10 or 11 or 12 and 13, I, no yeah. way would you, I. I mean, if, if I had not watched this movie and you just showed me a picture of baby Josh Hutcherson I'd probably, yeah. in this film and asked me how old he was, I would probably say anywhere between nine and 13. Yes, that would be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, I would be like maybe 12, 11, 10, I don't know, like somewhere in that range, maybe, but I, and I think, I think that's not a unique uh, yeah. thing. Unless yeah. you maybe have kids and you were very or or a teacher <laughs> or something where you're around specific ages of kids and like know what that age of kid looks like. But yeah, I no idea. Um, Greg said, I think the latter range is is really the sweet spot for this story, because in my experience with kids, that's the age at which they both tend to still be imagination driven enough to conjure up something like Terabithia as a way of passing the time and to have matured enough to start grappling with problems like social class hierarchies and bullying in a more adult way. By prepubescence, I think most kids have started to think of playing pretend as childish, so middle schoolers doing it felt odd to me. Not to mention that this was the plot was the point where, at least when I was growing up, the artsy cool girls in the like movie Leslie actually started to accrue some social cachet. Yeah, that's how you say it. I, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I I. Well, I just want to say I don't agree. You're talking about your experience here, but um, I would agree that I do think that like around th- if he's 13, if you're 13, that's like right. We're getting to the age yeah, of like the getting, kind of yes. playing they're doing is not. Either you're really going to start the- feeling like it's baby stuff. Yes, yeah, you're definitely pushing it um, for sure. Uh, again, I uh, you've asked me how old they were. I would have said 11. I don't know. I don't. I, yeah. Again, I don't. I don't like <laughs> uh, whatever. I don't know. They're old. They're old enough to be still doing a made up. Yeah, imagination games so i don't know whatever but like i yeah it's just not something i really thought about but i i, I do agree that's not true because i did at least once think that they felt a little old mm-hmm. for kind of the yeah the creating your own magical kingdom and building a tree fort like kind of thing like again that i yeah it feels more like 10 year old yeah. kind of stuff but you also have to juxtapose that like you said with some of the more um complicated like emotional Mm-hmm. Uh, realities of like bullying and all this sort of stuff, which is not as interesting when, or not not as interesting, but is 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 um not as complicated when the kids are younger. Like so, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Again, to me, they were close enough to that right age of like right. eleven that it wasn't. If they weren't, if they looked like fifteen year olds, I would be like okay. But like they were, looked close enough that my brain was able not to care or right. think about it. No, really. I, I agree, and particularly uh, Josh Hutcherson. There's a reason that I've been calling him Baby Josh Hutcherson yeah. this entire time because he looks like a very small child to me in this movie. Yeah, he's got like little chubby cheeks. Yeah. Uh, Anna Sophia Rob, I think, looks maybe a little older. 
than he does, but I think that works because girls typically do at that age. Yeah. I As for the artsy cool girls, uh, you know, being coming popular kind of at that age range, maybe. I think that depends maybe, a lot yeah, on the school. I, yes, I think that, yes, for that sure. Thing. Because that was most assuredly not the case <laughs> when I, I, the school I was at. I would say in middle school and my school, I, I can't think, like the girls that were like this were not popular. They maybe weren't picked on, which again, they're not, she yeah. wasn't really super picked on other than by that one kid right um like they weren't really picked on or anything but they also weren't like cool (laughs) they were like the weird girls yeah i don't know like it yeah um greg went on to say i'm not sure whether the filmmakers did this because they wanted to introduce a proto-romantic subtext to the friendship or because they couldn't find younger actors skilled enough to carry off the range of emotions required but the change didn't totally work for me fair enough we've covered it yeah Finally, this may be a provincial complaint, but as someone who grew up in the mid-Atlantic region and spent a ton of my childhood playing in the wo- in woods like the ones the kids play in in the book, the fact that this was shot in New Zealand was distractingly obvious to me because the landscapes, vegetation, wildlife, and so on look nothing like those in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to the issue with the obviously Kiwi extras, which you mentioned. Yeah. Again, I, it, it was pretty obvious to me and I'm not from that. Re- I've never even yeah. been really to that region, but I, it just clearly didn't really look. Not, I would say it clearly didn't look like America. Like it, it, I could have bought it if you didn't look too hard. But it, it also. Yeah. If you're from that region, I could tell I could imagine being like, yeah, that's not. Yeah. Um, A minor thing that might not bother people who aren't from the region where the story takes place, but it did take me out of it. All in all, these are nitpicks. I completely agree with both of you that it's still a good movie. But I will stick with the book, which, while it was obviously written in a different time and social climate and has some dated elements as a result, still coheres a bit better for me. Awesome. Thank you very much, Greg. Our other comment on Facebook was from Bridget, who said, Going with the book on this one, hands down, the movie could have been a cinematic masterpiece without equal, and I would still choose the book. I read it in one sitting when I was in middle school and remember the feeling of confusion rapidly turning into the rending crack of my heart when I realized that, no, she actually did die. The bittersweet tragedy of She Loved You and the later realization that love was not always about kissing but about valuing someone in their presence in your life, even if it was too brief and then moving on past the tragedies. Not forgetting the person for a moment, but continuing to live. Terabithia lodged itself very firmly in my brain, and while I couldn't have articulated most of this when I first read it, it became one of my most important touchstones in dealing with life. Probably helps explain why, when I joined Roller Derby, I chose the name Terabithia. There you go. Fantastic great, derby name. Great derby name as well. But uh, yeah, no, that's, that's really... Um, it's fantastic. Over on Twitter, we didn't have any comments, but we did have three votes for the book and one for the movie. On Instagram, we had four votes for the book and three for the movie. Um, Tim Wahoo said, unless the book has pictures, the movie is usually better. Well, you know. And I, well, I am delighted. You're welcome to tell on yourself in that way, I guess. But. <laughs> and I'm delighted to tell you, Tim Wahoo, my mortal enemy. Um, that <laughs> that this book actually did have illustrations. Yeah. So, uh, well, suck on that. <laughs> uh, it's such an interesting opinion. <laughs> Anyways, 
All right. So our winner was the book with 13 votes to the movie's five plus two listeners who couldn't decide. All right. Uh, yeah. Book That's wins out. That's about what I expected. Pretty, pretty much figured the book. Uh, yeah. It was yeah. A very well known and beloved book. So and the movie. Well, again, I think most people. Well, well like it, it was quite good. And yeah. most people said that. Yeah. You know, going with the book, but the movie was still quite good. Yeah. Yeah, this is not one of those where the movie is kind of fumbled completely. Yeah, um, it was you know it's just, just you know two good versions of the same thing. Yeah, and and there's movies. some beloved memories that you're just never gonna live up to. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we do have a learning thing segment this week, and what we're learning about is Mike Shane mysteries. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Okay, so um, I had never heard of this series. I hadn't either. Um, so I thought it might be nice before we have this discussion to just get like a little bit of background information yeah. on this book series because I'm guessing that that's going to be the case for a lot of our listeners as well. Um, so um, the character Michael Mike Shane is a fictional private detective character. Uh, created during the late 1930s by writer Davis Dresser under the pen name Brett Halliday, mm -hmm. which is funny to me because I think Davis Dresser sounds more like pen name than Brett Halliday does. Yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> but sure, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, so this was a series. Uh, the first Shane novel was rejected by 21 publishers uh, before it was accepted by Henry Holt and Co., in 1939 uh, and it went on to apparently be highly successful at least according to wikipedia uh, it was reprinted in many editions um, which i did notice on goodreads that there are a lot of different editions of these books um, and translated into french spanish italian german swedish japanese and hebrew huh. Um, and the series includes 77 different novels, some of which were written by Dresser, but many of which were written by various ghostwriters, as these types of large series tend to be, um, as well as over 300 different short stories featuring the character. Um, all of this published roughly between 1939 and 1976. It's fascinating. I've never heard of yeah, this. Yeah, literally series. never heard of this. No. Um, aside from the title character, um, some other recurring characters in the stories are reporter Tim Rourke, uh, police lieutenant Will Gentry, uh, Shane's secretary, Lucy Hamilton, and his wife, Phyllis, although she was killed off in the 1940s. Fridge the wife. Yep. I mean, we can't be a hard-boiled detective and have a wife, no, right? surely not. Surely not. Uh, Dresser also late, later created Mike Shane Mysteries magazine, um, first introduced in 1956, and that magazine would continue to be in publication for nearly three decades and always included at least one Shane novella in each edition. The property was also adapted into a series of 12 films released between 1940 and 1947, initially starring Lloyd Nolan as the title character, although that role passed to Hugh Beaumont when the series was dropped by 20th, 20th Century Fox and then picked up by PRC Films 
following the release of Time to Kill in 1942. I did just look that up because I was interested. I was like, I wonder if they ever adapted these. I figured you would get to it. But yeah, it says the first seven films were 20th Century Fox Mm -hmm. and like much more kind of high profile, big budget films. And then the other five after that were a lot lower budget, kind of like more pulpy movies. So yeah, again, literally never heard of this man. Nope. (laughs) <laughs> I, it must not have it, mu- it must not be anybody's favorite thing because it's one of the or yeah. like it's it's you know usually uh, this kind of series would have had a some sort of if it was had been you know super popular i don't want to say it wasn't clearly they made 12 movies like it was at least popular enough to make 12 movies about it and there's hundreds of books or whatever but it does it is interesting that something like this had i have never even it heard just, of it just dropped off the face of the earth it w- seems like when surely it is inspired some some modern you know authors writers whatever because it's you know usually with these kind of things i've at least heard about them because like george lucas liked them or something you know what i mean like usually there's like something where somebody and i guess in this instance mike shane or um uh shane black (laughs) maybe (laughs) liked it i don't know but like it is interesting that yeah it it seems like it it, it's kind of a cultural black hole at least for us which is surprising again if neither of us have literally ever even heard of it just it's I, kind of yeah cause, i mean usually i've at least heard of things yeah yeah <laughs> uh, the character also uh, over the years appeared in uh, radio programs tv series as well as comic books um over the decades uh, and according to wikipedia the character and the author were at one point household names. Yeah. That's what it says on the Wikipedia That's article. So but I, I, I have to assume that they stopped being household names at some point. I mean, well, so they. it looks like they, I mean, the last movie was 47. And the last so, book was like 76. Yeah. So, so I if guess they just, just, yeah, if they just stopped being popular once they stopped coming out. And there was probably something else similar that took its place. Like there's probably other, you know, obviously a similar, right. maybe a similar type of thing would be like James Bond. Like, well, obviously what, it's not what's, the, what, what's the history of Dick Tracy? How old or, is yeah, Dick, Dick Tracy? Tracy? Like, <laughs> you know, actually I, know, obviously James Bond is very different in the sense it's like a spy yes. version, but it's a similar kind of like, vaguely the similar genre i would think you know obviously again right. i know they're not the same genre but like maybe the audience was enough crossover that like things like james bond and dick tracy and blah 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 kind of took up the yeah the mantle and so the like you said um this just kind of faded away yeah. for whatever reason Interesting. Know. Let us know if you yeah, have if, heard if, of if, Mike Shane mysteries. Is, is this your favorite thing? Or even if it's not favorite, like have, <laughs> how many of our fans have even heard of it? I just like I said, yeah, it's so I fascinating. would be really interested to know um, how many how many of our listeners have have even heard of this series or character. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're going to talk about one specific of those novels from the Mike Shane series, and that is. Bodies Are Where You Find Them by Brett Holiday. Halliday. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no, we're not ready for your audition. Just take him, he's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old-school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. Uh, so this is a 1941 novel. 
um, quite a slim novel. It's not very long. Yeah, it's like 170 pages. Yeah, I was hedging on being a novella, really. Um, uh, By, as I mentioned, Davis Dresser under the pen name Brett Halliday. And it is the fifth novel in the Mike Shane detective series. Uh, And I couldn't find any fun facts about the novel itself. So here are a handful of fun facts about the author. Uh, Dresser, uh, born in Chicago, but he mostly grew up in West Texas. Uh, He lost an eye to some barbed wire when he was a kid and has wore wore an eye patch for the rest of his life. Um, Dresser was married to mystery writer Helen McCloy from uh, 1946 to 1961. And as partners, they formed a literary agency called Halliday and McCloy. Uh, Dresser also established Torquil Publishing Company, which published his books as well as those of other authors. Uh, He was also a founding member of the Mystery Writers of America. So there's that. Yeah. Um, There's also some dispute on how many of um, the Mike Shane novels that Dresser actually wrote himself and how many were published under his pseudonym but written by Mm, others. mm -hmm. Um, Usually it's supposed that he stopped writing completely or like for the most part after Murder and the Wanton Bride. In 1958. That's a great title. I was kind of skimming the list of books and they all have great titles. They do have great titles, yeah. I mean, even this one, Murder or uh, Bodies Are Where You Find Them, is a great title. Yeah. It's all very like pulpy, like dime store novel kind of stuff. Fantastic. Um, So even though I couldn't find uh, much, if anything, on the book itself, I did want to include this incredible little excerpt from the description on Goodreads, which I assume is from like the back of some edition of the book at some point. Not the one we have, right? No, I I don't think so. Um, This was just what was like up on Goodreads. He's a tough private eye with a nose for trouble, an eye for the ladies, and two fists for anyone who stands in his way. Fantastic. He works out of Miami but he's no fashion plate with a fast car. Shane's a hard-drinking, tough-minded guy <laughs> on the wrong end of 30. Incredible. I 10 out of 10, no notes. Fantastic. This reminds me of, I just listened to an episode uh, a couple weeks, I think a week or two ago, one of the more recent, maybe the most recent new episode of Behind the Bastards, which is a, a great podcast that I enjoy. And they did... Uh, kind of a weird diversion uh he did an episode on um like at men's lifestyle adventure magazines Mm -hmm. from this time period you know like the the 40s through the 60s or whatever um and like those like men's magazines where that are like you know they had like pinups in them and then they would be like they'd sell all kinds of weird nonsense and Mm -hmm. then like but they would be included in a lot of them would be stories like yeah this kind of stuff and it was like all the stories he read were like men like this the description (laughs) here is like exactly (laughs) that kind of thing i'm gonna start saying that i'm on the wrong end of 30 when (laughs) people ask how old i am amazing (laughs) All right, well, let's go ahead now and talk about the movie that is ostensibly based on this book, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang. Bang, bang. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. Bang, bang. 
Why? She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister, she was Honey, murdered. Are you gonna help me? I gotta check my schedule. Can you help me, Harry? Because you're I, not gonna help me okay, find somebody okay. else. So sometimes I have other, oh, uh, my caseload oh, is, is pretty. Thank you. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad right. to you. No! Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. Uh, we'll get to it, but it's, you know. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out how much it's based on this book. Uh, it is a 2005 film written and directed by Shane Black, known for the Lethal Weapon series, The Nice Guys, and Iron Man 3, uh, also for starring in Predator, among other things. Uh, the film stars Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, Michelle Monaghan, Corbin Burnson, and Ariel Winter. I include her because I thought that was funny that she was in this. Um, she plays a young Michelle Monaghan at one point, I think, in, in hmm. the story. Um, but those... Those four people are Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, Michelle Monaghan, and Corbin Burnson are really like the main people. Everybody else kind of just has bit parts. The film has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72 on Metacritic, and a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, not a box office smash, as pretty much none of Shane Black's movies have ever been. Uh, he made 15.8 million against a budget of 15 million, mm. um, but apparently it did pretty well internationally. But like, it, it not not a great uh, part of that though. From what I read, is it opened in a very limited number of theaters in the U.S. Uh, and it kind of became a, a kind of a cult hit after mm. after uh, its theatrical run. Uh, this is really interesting. It was nominated for a handful of awards, including uh, mainly some science fiction, the the Academy of Motion Pictures of Science, with the the fake the non Academy Awards, but it is the but it's like for science fiction, fantasy, and they have like their own awards. They used to at least more okay. so, and it was nominated for a bunch of awards for that. It also uh, showed at Cannes because um, Warner Brothers was very happy with it and liked it a lot, and it won. Uh, or was nominated for a golden camera, which may be best director, best cinematographer. I don't know what that is, but some award it can um, did not win. But more interestingly, I thought this is fascinating. It was one of the nominees for outstanding film wide release at the glad awards that year, which if you don't know, the glad awards is the LGBTQ mm-hmm. like movie and TV awards, basically. Cause it has a gay character. Cause it, it. And we'll talk about it, but yeah, cause it has a, a gay lead. Um, hmm. So, following the poor box office of The Long Kiss Goodnight uh, and a rejection letter from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, Shane Black decided that he wanted to do something outside of the action genre because it's basically all he had done to this point. And he was initially planning to do, uh, he wanted to follow in the footsteps of apparently James L. Brooks, who, who was doing action movies and then went on to do romantic comedies. And he wanted to do a romantic comedy, but he sent his script to James L. Brooks and he liked it, but he thought it kind of lost its focus. And so Black decided he needed to rework the script and ended up adding a murder and adding more action elements to it and kind of turned it into a rom-com action mystery movie. And at this time, it was also when he added uh, the character of Gay Perry, played by Val Kilmer, ultimately, uh, who Black described as an attempt to break stereotypes, saying, quote, I'd never seen the gay guy who kicks down the door, shoots everyone, and bails your ass out before, end quote. I mean, in, in 2000, what, 2005? Yeah. 2005, fair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a note later, but Val Kilmer's depiction of Gay Perry is generally considered to be the first openly gay character to front a Hollywood action movie. 
generally there like he's one of the two leading people in it so uh and again i'm sure there's quite a bit of problematic portrayal in his performance and everything like that but it, it you know it is it was kind of groundbreaking in its own way which i think is why glad yeah. nominated it if i had to guess um because it definitely goes against the stereotypes of the time period of what you saw from gay characters in media uh, so uh, black tried to sell the film to several studios all of them kind of turned him down Eventually, he would get a break from his friend Joel Silver, who had produced the Lethal Weapon series and The Last Boy Scout with him. And at this time, the script was titled um, You'll Never Die in This Town Again. But after he signed on with uh, Joel Silver at Warner Brothers, they changed the name to uh, LAPI uh, and actually had several different actors considered for the leading role, which Robert Downey Jr. would go on to play. Some of those other actors included Benicio Del Toro, Hugh Grant, and Johnny Knoxville. And I read somewhere else that Mm. Johnny Knoxville was actually set up to play this role before being recast for whatever reason um, by Robert Downey Jr. But speaking of Robert Downey Jr., he heard about this movie from his girlfriend at the time, who was Joel's uh, Joel Silver's assistant. Uh, And they actually went on to get married and they've been married (laughs) since 2005. So like literally the year this movie came out. Uh, and he auditioned for the role uh, because of his girlfriend telling him about it. Uh, he ended up being cast. And the primary reason he was cast in the role, they liked his performance and everything and thought he'd be good in it. But also they knew he would be cheap because uh, as, it's funny in mm-hmm. retrospect now that Robert yes. Downey Jr. would be cheap. But this is coming right off of him being out of jail and kind of his yeah. his career has this is uh, several years before Iron Man. Um, but yeah, it. it uh he was incredibly affordable at the time. So they were like, that's a good reason to do it. Uh, so eventually the title was changed again uh, from LAPI to kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And supposedly this is a Val Kilmer suggestion. Uh, and black went with it because he thought it was quote blunt and austere. And it also accurately described how the ploy was half rom or the plot was half rom-com and half murder mystery. Hmm. So kiss, kiss and bang, bang. And we also talked about in the James Bond episode that that was Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yes. Was a uh, kind of a moniker that in foreign media, they would kind of talk or use it as a nickname for James Bond, basically Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang, which I'm sure is probably where Val Kilmer heard it or got it from. And then, um, recommended it for the title so uh, uh another note about val kilmer supposedly didn't drink during the entire production as a show of support for robert downey jr who was you know fairly freshly in recovery at this mm. period of his life um speaking of robert downey jr this is supposedly his favorite movie that he's done uh, and it's considered actually one of the main reasons that he landed the role as tony stark i believe there's actually crossover and maybe the casting director or something on these two films but um this role is credited as the main reason that he would go on to be cast as tony stark uh, a couple years after this and then as a thank you to shane black for putting him in this movie uh, Robert Downey Jr. would push for Sane Black to come and direct an Iron Man film, and ultimately he would direct Iron Man 3, the most hated of the Iron Man. Actually, that's not true. I, <laughs> I was going to say, didn't people hate Iron Man 2 more? Maybe. I don't know. It, Iron Man 3 is very controversial. People, a lot of people like it, but mainly people who like Shane Black movies. And mm-hmm. it, it was it, people who aren't into Shane Black movies as much did not like it as much. I, from what I've heard, I've actually never seen Iron Man 3. It might be the only of the original like the pre-end game marvel oh, movies yeah. that i've never seen maybe it might be yeah the only i've one. never seen it either yeah i don't know what happened where i missed that but for whatever reason i missed it and then i just never never got back around to seeing it so at this point i'm so behind yeah. on marvel movies i've i've given up yeah it's never happening yeah 
so the there's a big Hollywood party at the beginning of the film, and this was actually shot at Shane Black's actual L.A. mansion where he would have similar industry parties, which mm. is what this ends up being. Um, so it was basically just filming the reality. <laughs> <laughs> he just threw a party and yeah, filmed it. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> uh, so getting to some reviews. Mike Russell of the Oregonian observed, quote, this is one of Downey's most enjoyable performance performances and one of Kilmer's funniest. It's a relationship comedy wrapped in sharp talk and gunplay, a triumphant comeback for black and one of the year's best movies, end quote. Uh, IGN critic Jeff Otto said, quote, it takes a bunch of genres and twists them into a blender, a pop relic that still feels current. One of the best times I've had at the movies this year, end quote. Writing for The Hollywood Reporter, Kirk Honeycutt praised the uh, performances, saying, quote, Downey and Monaghan are wonderful at playing characters that compensate for the harshness of their past with flippant, flippant swagger. And then writing for Variety, Todd McCarthy said, quote, once again, making a diverting but uh, once again, making a diverting but insubstantial movie look better than it is. Downey, with haggard charm to burn, is winning all the way. Kilmer is riotous at times as an impeccably groomed business like guy keen to assert his orientation at every opportunity. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Which is not wrong. He does mention that he's gay quite often in the movie. And then our final one, uh, Roger Ebert, uh, back, he was still alive and writing reviews at this point, writing for the Chicago Sun-Times, gave the film two and a half out of four stars. So, you know, not terrible, but not amazing. Uh, and he said on the film, quote, it contains a lot of comedy and invention, but doesn't much benefit from its clever style. The characters and plot are so promising that maybe Black should have backed off and told the story deadpan instead of mugging so shamelessly for laughs, end quote. So Ebert, uh, you know, mixed mixed feelings on mm. the film, but seems like overall, you know, mostly enjoyed it. But just didn't didn't think it quite stuck the landing. So that's going to do it for this prequel. So before we wrap up, we wanted to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, follow us there, write us a review on one of the places where you listen to us or support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash this film is lit. If you're a patron supporter at the $15 and up level, you get priority Mac recommendations, which this one is. Katie, who recommended this one? This was a request from Ian from Wine Country. Ian from Wine Country. Thank you, Ian from Wine Country, for giving us a a good Christmas movie to lead it, which I believe this does take place at least partially at Christmas, as every Shane Black movie does. I don't know if you did that on purpose. I did not. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this takes place during Christmas in LA, like around the Uh it's not really mentioned much, but every Shane Black, all of his movies, almost all of them kind of take black take place around. Hmm. He likes to include Christmas, Christmas. in his movies. So. Interesting. Good for um, him. I th- am I making? Am I mixing that up with somebody else? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm pretty sure he he he. Every Shane Black movie set during Christmas: Lethal Weapon, Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man Three. Yeah, he he likes setting his movies around Christmas, hmm. but they're not really like Christmas movies. Well, that worked out serendipitously then because <laughs> I did not know that where can people watch kiss kiss bang bang well as always you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you've still got one um this is not in any streaming packages that I could find um but you can rent it it used to be I thought we watched it on yeah, that's interesting. That would have been years ago. Though. I mean, that was, yes, you're right. That yeah. was years ago. Um, but you can rent it for around four bucks from Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Vudu, DirecTV, Google Play, or Redbox. 
There you go. Uh, and I, I didn't actually get to it in a book, in a note, and we'll talk about it, obviously, in the main episode, because I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know. But I've heard uh, and Ian mentioned to us in a comment after we said we were doing this that uh, this book is, or this movie is maybe more um, inspired by this book mm-hmm. as opposed to I kind of got it. that vibe. And from what I, I uh, uh, from the few notes that I saw about the adaptation process in the research I was doing, it sounds like it's mainly like the the mystery like the murder mystery part mm-hmm. is kind of like taken from like pulled from that novel but then all of the elements around it are yeah fabricated yeah like i kind of got that vibe too when i saw a note as i was doing research today that the character of mike shane does not does appear not make an appearance no maybe i was I like believe, okay i believe robert downey's year's good name is is, <laughs> is harry i think or something like that um so yeah and, well, and, we'll we'll have to see if he fits the description and the, and the detective yeah is as gay perry so being yeah. on the wrong side of 30 <laughs> Let's if I yeah I, I don't think it's even would be Robert Downey Jr. because he's not the detective. It would be it Val Kilmer's character who was like forty I think. When there they you filmed go. This, so. He's on the yeah, but he doesn't have an eye for women. <laughs> that's true. He did not, <laughs> which is a you know can be a fun inversion for sure. We'll yeah, see. for sure. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode. We'll be back in one week's time talking about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Until that time, guys, gals, I'm Bonnie Pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books, watching movies, and keep, keep being movies. awesome. 